I Am The Law is brought to you by Blueprint LSAT Test Prep, which reports an average score increase of 15 points. With the first AI-powered QBank, fun videos, personalized study plans, and engaging 98th percentile instructors, Blueprint has helped thousands of students crush their LSAT goals. Learn more at BlueprintLSAT.com. From Law Hub, this is I Am The Law, a podcast where we talk with lawyers about their jobs to shed light on how they fit into the larger legal ecosystem. In this episode, Kimber Russell interviews a small-town criminal defense lawyer who digs into the business of running your own practice. Support comes from Seton Hall University School of Law in Newark, New Jersey, where you can enroll full-time or in the weekend JD program. In the heart of New Jersey, with proximity to New York City, Seton Hall is dedicated to your outcomes, evidenced by high employment and bar passage rates. It's one student at a time approach supports you throughout your time in law school. Their flexible hybrid weekend JD program allows working professionals to balance work, family, and law school. Learn more at law.shu.edu. Support also comes from the University of Idaho College of Law and its two locations. The Moscow location has all the resources of the university's main campus, neighboring a picturesque, charming college town. The Boise location is in the heart of downtown, just blocks from the seat of government. Either Idaho Law location provides an abundance of outdoor opportunities. As the only law school in the state, Idaho Law provides near-exclusive access to the courts, the legislature, and the rapidly developing business and nonprofit community. We're joined today by Matt Swain, who is a 2009 graduate of the University of Oklahoma College of Law. Matt runs a solo criminal defense practice, which is located about 20 miles outside of Oklahoma City in Norman. So, Matt, um, the thing about running your own shop is that you're really a small business owner so much as you are a practitioner. So tell me about the business side of, of your firm. What do you do on a day-to-day basis to keep the lights on? Going in, graduating from law school, I opened up my own shop and from the beginning was out on my own. I've kind of had to learn the business side of things and it's kind of been an eye-opening experience realizing that half of my time, you know, close to half is is spent on the business side and I was handed that degree and thought that I would be, you know, out practicing law and spending most of my time doing that. But the administrative stuff does take a lot more time. There are three other attorneys in my suite, and we all share office space. Uh, two out of the three of them share an, a secretary with me, and I'm kind of the one that's in charge of the office, uh, making sure that we have all the all the necessary equipment and materials, you know, paper, etc. Managing the secretary and making sure that she has everything she needs, she knows what to do for each one of us, she knows she has our schedules correct and the calendar up to date, and then the payroll and other things involved with managing her just outside of my own individual practice. Do you think that that office share situation is something that you see a lot of young attorneys and solo practitioners opting for these days? I do. In criminal defense, especially here in Oklahoma, you see very few large firms. If you see multiple attorneys that are associated in the same firm, it's not going to be any more than three or four attorneys. So most criminal attorneys are solo practitioners. And if you can afford to do it at a law school, and if you have 
have the uh, the guts to to try to pull it off, it, it it definitely is a great thing. Now you mentioned that you do a lot of your own administrative work. Are you using some kind of case management software or practice management software to help you do that? Yes, I've I've used Practice Master off and on throughout the last two years. I've kind of switched to my own way of doing things uh, with Excel spreadsheets and Word documents. Doing it on my own, I knew what different categories I needed to fill out for my own clients and with Practice Master and some of these other softwares that were not specific to criminal defense, it made it harder to do that. But definitely recommend a practice management software. There's a, a bunch of them out there. They, they can be pretty costly if you're a solo person, but it's definitely worth it. What do you think some of the benefits are using a software program as opposed to doing it yourself, kind of cobbling together with Word and Excel spreadsheets and maybe Google Docs? With the practice management software like Practice Master, that's really the only one that I've used in the past. That software does a good job of having different categories and kind of getting your mind right in terms of what categories you need to fill in. So when you're when you're starting out, you don't really know what what you want to keep track of. You don't know that on a criminal case you need to keep track of the victims in the case and keep track of you know multiple case numbers uh, in terms of the defendant's priors and the arresting officer, for example. That software gets your mind right and gets you in a position to where you know later on, okay, these are the categories that I need to get. And then you can tailor that to yourself if you decide to do a Excel spreadsheet or Word docs or Google docs or just however you want to do it later on once you've gotten the hang of things more. Now, you say 50% of your time is really spent doing a lot of the meat and potatoes of just running the business. Marketing must be an important part of that. What, what kind of marketing efforts do you execute to improve your business? Marketing is, is a whole big chunk of that 50%, probably 35% of it. I just got a new website probably within the last, within the last two months. It's important to get all of the social media platforms together, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Google Maps. I'm very big in analytics. I'm very big into knowing where my clients are coming from. So I, I try to keep track of that. And a lot of my time goes into trying to figure out what those acquisition costs are and what I need to do to make things better so that I don't have to turn around and hire somebody else to get me those answers. For those who might not be familiar, what do you mean when you say that you're using analytics? Google Analytics is a program within Google that allows you to see where people come when they're going to your website, what other medium referred them to your site, where they're located, what page on your site they landed on, and then what other pages they went to, how long they spent on that page, and the main thing for me is is the website that brought them to me. Whether it's a Google search, it'll, it will tell me what the terms were that they searched or whether they found me through a, a different referral website that I pay monthly for that has my name on the top of their page as their featured attorney. Knowing where I'm getting clients allows me to redirect my advertising budget to do, those different you know mediums to try to make sure that I get the best bang for my buck. Where do you see a lot of your potential clients coming from? Fine Law has been fantastic. I got a new website with them about two months ago, but I've been in talks with them for three or four months. And I've been getting a lot of clients through there. Other than that, just Google marketing, a lot of pay-per-click advertising, which can be very expensive. 
But if you if you know what your audience is, you know what search terms they're looking for. So, for example, you know Cleveland County, which is the county that I'm located in and, and mainly practice in. Cleveland County criminal attorney, Cleveland County uh, DUI attorney isn't necessarily the best search term because when people are looking for an attorney, they they're not associating the county that they're charged in. They're looking for the town that that county is located in. So Cleveland County DUI attorney is not the best use of my money. Norman DUI attorney or Oklahoma City DUI attorney is going to be a better avenue. And so that's you know one of the things that I've learned over the years by using analytics. You actually have taken on sort of more of a, a managerial role in your office space. How did that come to be? And what are some of the challenges when you are dealing with, say, payroll and just regular bills and just dealing with different personalities in that office? I'm very organized. And when it comes to the business side of things, I, I have a great interest in that. I have some real estate ventures on the side and, and other entrepreneurial things. And so that has really helped me focus on the day-to-day tasks that need to be accomplished and you know setting goals into the future for things that we're going to do to improve our office. For example, we're working on redoing our conference room right now and ordering new chairs and a new TV and, and you know, a blackboard and different things that we can do to set this up to where it looks more professional. Because in the future, I'm going to be shooting video and adding different things to my website like that. I'm very good at the long-term, the long-term picture and coming up with goals and, and different things that I want in the future so that I can get my practice just where I need it. Now, this office share arrangement that you have, it's not an actual partnership. How does that affect the relationship between the attorneys in the office? It's incredibly important. When people come in and hire, you know, myself or hire another attorney, things need to be made perfectly clear who they're hiring in the contract phase, in the letterhead phase. You know, everybody has to have specific letterhead that, you know, spells out who they are and and the fact that there's no association between us. You know, one of the things that's been a little bit difficult is when there's another attorney in this office that does criminal defense and he and I are good friends. And on some of the bigger cases, uh, a few murder cases and and some sex crimes, he and I have worked on the cases together. We've had to spell out specifically in contracts and in discussions with clients the fact that we are not associated. The fact that he's hiring two separate criminal defense attorneys who are happen to work on this case together. But for professional responsibility reasons with the bar, for malpractice insurance reasons, you have to be very, very careful to make sure that you're not associating yourself professionally with the other people that you share office space with so that there are no questions in the end that, you know, are you a firm? The two or three people that work on these cases routinely with you, are they associated with you? No, that's not the case. We're entirely separate. That way I'm not held responsible if one of those other attorneys do something that, you know, could get them in in trouble later. Well, you did talk about the breakdown in your office. So some of the other attorneys do maybe some of what you do, but not everything. How does your specific practice break down in addition to doing criminal defense? How would you say that breaks down for your clients? Probably 95% of what I do is criminal defense. The rest is personal injury. And then of that 95%, I would say probably 35% of that is, is DUIs. I do about 75 of those a year. 
And then the rest is just miscellaneous criminal matters, everything from marijuana possession cases to larceny to more serious rape cases, the occasional murder. It kind of runs the gamut of all all things criminal. How long were you out of law school before you handled a murder case? I was about a year out of law school, and I handled it in association with that other attorney that I mentioned earlier that I share office space with. I went through a long period of time where I didn't feel comfortable handling some of the bigger things for malpractice reasons. You know, I didn't want to be responsible with screwing something up. I mean, we're dealing with people whose you know, lives are on the line. And so for a very long time, for probably four, four and a half years, I took these bigger cases, but associated myself with other attorneys in the community who had experience, who I can learn from. I volunteered for free for a few trials with other attorneys in the in the community who are very well respected and, and very good at their trial practice to get to where I really felt comfortable in the courtroom and to develop a, a good reputation with the prosecutors in the DA's offices. But it, it took a good, I'd probably say four to five years before I really felt comfortable handling a murder case or handling uh, certain other cases that, that carried life in prison. Wow. Now, you had mentioned that about 5% of what you do is personal injury. Are you only taking select cases hoping that you might land on that sort of golden goose? Yes. I certainly take all personal injury calls. I have other attorneys in the area who I refer some smaller PI cases to. And then I'm, I'm just kind of waiting on, you know, the bigger, the bigger case. I usually only take probably two a year. The last one was a, a car accident with a three or four occupants in which they each had to have surgery for various reasons. And so the, the bills on that were in the hundreds of thousands. And so usually the, the bigger things are what I'm looking for. Why do you think it's so difficult as a solo practitioner to do personal injury cases? Well, there's a lot of costs associated with it. On criminal cases, the way attorneys, at least here, bill them, it's all flat fee and you bill it based on how much time you think it's going to take. On personal injury cases, they're all contingent fee. So I'm not getting paid unless my client receives money from the person who caused the accident or the insurance company. So in terms of time, I can't take very many of these cases at at one time because I can't spend all my time working on something that I'm probably going to get paid on, but it might be a year or two down the road uh, before I do that. So Just having a practice that only concentrates on personal injury can be very difficult because you have to pay the bills. Everybody has overhead, and that overhead um, can be expensive. So I I need to make sure that I can take care of that overhead and and, bring some money home and, and feed my family. Support comes from Vermont Law and Graduate School. Vermont Law and Graduate School empowers students to dream big. It welcomes and shares passions for social justice, the environment, criminal justice reform, and so much more. At BLGS, realism and idealism collide. Together, students and faculty positively transform the world around them. From an accelerated two-year JD to an online hybrid JD, BLGS offers innovative programs where you can learn at your own pace. To learn more, please visit vermontlaw.edu. Support also comes from Albany Law School. Albany Law School is committed to increasing access to the legal profession. 
Albany Law's online FlexJD delivers all the benefits you'd expect from an institution that's been educating future lawyers and leaders since 1851. With one in-person session per year, you'll complete most of your work online, giving you the flexibility you need to earn your law degree when and where it works for you. To find out how you can begin your journey to earning a JD, visit albanylaw.edu today. Support also comes from Baylor Law School, the smallest and oldest law school in Texas. Baylor Law has three entering classes, 15 tracks of study, strong bar passage and employment rates, robust scholarship offerings, numerous clinics and joint degree programs, and a focus on preparing excellent and ethical lawyers. Visit the Baylor Law website to learn more and to apply for free to the spring, summer, and or fall entering classes. Matt, I want to talk to you now about the nitty gritty of your criminal practice, but Earlier, you were able to break things down with incredible specificity. How are you able to understand in so much detail what your practice is? I keep track of more numbers historically than than any other attorney that I know, whether it's how many clients I received each week. I've got a, a spreadsheet of the new clients that I received for the last six years or seven years, really, just trying to discover if there are any trends. Is one month better than another? For example, I've found that the two weeks around Christmas is just a horrible time. I know when we have a misdemeanor call docket, which we have once per month here in in Cleveland County, I know that the week before, my numbers are going to be a lot higher. So I keep track of everything from, you know, when the new clients come in to where they're coming from, like we talked about earlier. And then specifically on the case, I keep track of, on my Excel spreadsheet, I keep track of everything from when the person hired me to who the arresting officer is, which is incredibly important, uh, what the outcome was, to when they're eligible for an expungement, because I want to be able to contact them later on, two, three, four years down the road, whenever they're eligible to get their case expunged based on the outcome that we achieved initially on their on their criminal case, so that they can be clients again. I want to be able to f- to follow through on you know on this work and have them pay in the future, you'd be surprised how many people, you know, two or three years from now, they completely forget that they can call their attorney and and get the case expunged off their record, which is incredibly helpful for them when it comes to jobs and anything that they want to do in the future. So I, I, I try to keep track of as many numbers as I can. Some of it might just make me feel better in slow times. I can look at my spreadsheet and know that, okay, you know, things are going to pick up because criminal defense, just like I'm sure most other practices of law, it's, it's like a roller coaster. You can have a bad week or a bad month, and then the next month could be the busiest that you've ever had. So it, it help, makes me feel better keeping track of all of those numbers. Well, you mentioned that you did detect some certain trends based on these numbers. What was the most surprising thing that you learned from tracking these numbers over the years? That the worst months really aren't as bad as I think. At the time, you don't get any calls for three or four days or you get two new clients in a, in a three-week period of time and you take that three weeks and in your head, you're thinking, wow, I've, I've had a horrible two months um, just because you know we work so hard and we're so uh, mentally and physically involved in our business. I mean, I, I specifically eat, breathe, sleep all, all of my, my business. I'm, whenever I go home at night and spend time with my family, I find myself thinking about, you know, different clients and thinking about different things that go on. 
I have my cell phone on me at all times and, and my clients have my cell phone number. So I, I routinely talk to them at home. But that mindset can backfire on you if you're not having the best week or the best you know few weeks. But keeping track of the trends has really made me, whenever I start thinking that things aren't going as well as they are, that I haven't gotten the calls that I've needed, that certain specific marketing techniques that I'm doing aren't working, it's really made me go back and, and look at things in a different way that, you know, things really aren't as bad as, as I think they are. And the fact that you really are so detail-oriented and really understanding, it sounds like to the, to the last digit how your business works, what, what competitive advantage do you think this gives you over other attorneys in the same area as you? Well, I know exactly how much money I've received from clients and how much money I haven't received. You know, many times clients, especially in criminal cases, come and they hire you and you put them on a payment plan and, and then they miss their deadlines and, and you don't collect it all. You know, I, I know that I've received 93% of all my collections uh, because I'm so detail-oriented and I've, and I've stayed on top of everybody. I've got a Word document that has every single payment I'm supposed to receive and I go in there and mark it off whether I received it or not. I make notes to myself. Okay, I talked to this person who had a payment due a month ago, and you know this is the hardship they have going on in their life. And I make notes to myself when to check up with them. On the money side, and then really the business side, I, I hate talking about the money stuff, but on the business side of things, it, it really makes me feel more comfortable. From being in college, I know there's nothing worse than procrastination and that feeling that you know something horrible is going on, or that by delaying something um, because you don't want to think about it. Many times, especially my clients, uh, don't want to worry about something that's going bad. I talk to them about out of sight, out of mind, just because you don't think about something and, and are pursuing something doesn't mean it's going to go away. And I think that a lot of attorneys that I know are so focused on the, the practice of law and doing things in the courtroom and taking care of their clients that they forget about the fact that this is a business. And, you know, the analytics of, of the business and staying on top of things has really allowed me to balance the two. Well, it sounds like you're really busy. About how many clients would you say, based on your numbers, which you have, that you have per year? I think it comes out to between 225 to 250 new clients a year. That's a significant number. It is. That's a lot of people. <laughs> how, do you, how do you juggle that many cases? Well, they're, they're all not going to take a year. Probably the average life of a felony is about six months. The average life of a misdemeanor is probably about four months. So at any given time, I might have 75 to 100 open files, but some of them you know, are set two or three months in the future. Some of them are closed. Like for example, DUIs, there's a court aspect to them here in Oklahoma. And the court side can be over with in three or four months. But there's also a civil aspect uh, with the Department of Public Safety in which they're trying to take somebody's driver's license. And, and currently, when somebody gets a DUI and we tell the Department of Public Safety that we want them to not take their license, we want them to have a hearing to see whether everything was done correctly, I'm not going to have that hearing for about a year. So many times, the criminal side is, is over with in four months or so. And then I don't have any interactions with the client until a year later, whenever we start dealing with their driver's license. So it's not too difficult. Sometimes I find myself not really good with names uh, and I have to 
I mainly use my cell phone. So every time I get a new client, I program their number in my phone and program, in addition to their name, something about their case that will help me remember what's going on. And so it's not as bad as as it probably sounds just because every case is at different stages. And, you know, that's one of the other good things about having other attorneys that you office share with. Two out of the three that I office share with do criminal defense. So we have a calendar in our office that says, you know, where we are each day. In the morning, I'm in Cleveland County. In the afternoon, I'm in Oklahoma County. And we have different color-coded markers for each attorney so that we can work with each other, so that we can cover different counties for each other. And, and sometimes I have three different counties I have to be in at one time. So having other attorneys that you can rely on and, and trust to carry the load of that is, is incredibly helpful. So at what stage do your clients typically come to you in in most of the cases that you have? Probably about 30% come to me before they've been arrested. So the charges have been filed and we need to surrender and get their bond as low as we can. The other 70% come to me after they've already been charged. They've already seen a judge and gotten their first court date. And they're coming to hire me so that I can be there at that first court date. All right, let's say, for example, you had a client that come in who's been booked on a DUI. The police are alleging that when he took the breathalyzer, he blew a 0.12 alcohol level. He calls you. What do you do next? Well, my, my DUI spiel takes about 45 minutes. <laughs> and, I, and I know we don't have that, but you know, I specifically go over the, the criminal and civil consequences and, and the fact that you know, there are two different proceedings one criminal and one civil with the driver's license, and that the two are probably not going to impact each other. Most people are more worried about the driver's license than the criminal uh, aspect, which has been fascinating to me. And then making them feel better with the fact that once I file an appeal on their license, that they're going to get it back. And that if we do everything correctly, they'll never actually lose their license. They might have a breathalyzer, which nobody likes, but that's better than losing their license. And then, you know, just kind of reassuring them on the criminal side that, you know, if this is their first time, that they're not looking at going to jail. It's just going to cost a tremendous amount of money, and they're going to have to do a lot of classes. Why are you surprised that people are more worried about losing their driver's licenses than being convicted for a DUI? Man, there's a lot of different reasons. I mean, I would think that when somebody's been in jail and they've gotten released from jail, they wouldn't want to go back. Um, but I think that a lot of people have DUIs, it seems like they're more prevalent these days and, and there are more people that have gotten them. And so I think from talking to friends and family, people know that on their first DUI or, or really even their second, the chance of them going back to that jail cell that they were just at is, is slim. And then here in Oklahoma, when you get a DUI, the, the officer actually takes your physical driver's license. They take that plastic license and they give you a piece of paper which is a temporary license, good for 30 days. And so I think the act of not having your plastic driver's license really surprises people. And then they start researching on their own or talking to attorneys and, and realizing that, for example, in Oklahoma, on an aggravated DUI, if you blow 0.15 or higher, so which is about twice the legal limit, your license could be impacted for up to two years. So you could have a breathalyzer for, for up to two years. And so so many people need their license just for everything during their day to go to the store, pick up kids, take kids to school, go to work, just to live their life. And I think the actual 
absence of that plastic driver's license that they've been so used to since they were 16 years old kind of surprises them and and makes them even more worried about it. I want to turn finally to some of the bigger cases. Now that now that you're more confident in your abilities as an attorney, you've actually defended some pretty brutal crimes, sexual assault, domestic abuse. What would you say the biggest challenge is when dealing with a case like this? It's gotten worse uh, or harder for me over the last few years. Uh, I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And so, you know, before, it took me about a year out of law school to really not be surprised at anything. I laugh or talk with other attorneys about how criminal defense attorneys and prosecutors, you know, we really have a, a jaded view of, of society, you know, just because of all the negative things we see. And, you know, none of that really bothered me too much until my first son was born. And then as they get older, he's four now, I've got a two-year-old, um, you know, and you start seeing cases dealing with children. It's having children and having a personal connection to some of these people, some of these victims in these cases is, is, has been incredibly difficult. You know, my kids are younger and most of the victims that I see in these cases are, are older, you know, victims of, of child sexual abuse, you know, many times are anywhere from 10 to 16 years old. And so I'm sure it's just going to get more difficult for me, but you, you have to compartmentalize things. You have to realize that, you know, your work stays at work, home stays at home. You have to get yourself in a mindset that once you get out of that car in your driveway, you're, you're there for your kids and, and you're spending time with them and you're not trying to think about some of the horrible things that you've heard or seen during work. But it, it is in, increasingly difficult and I, I can't imagine how difficult it is for some of these prosecutors who have children and, and routinely deal with specifically the sex crimes with, with children. Um, I really feel for them. Well, based on the difficulty that you're seeing in some of these cases, just emotionally dealing with them, are there some cases you just simply will not take? Yes. Uh, I, my wife and I do a lot of uh, animal rescue and animal welfare stuff. And I told myself from the beginning I wasn't going to take any animal cruelty cases. And I've, I've only taken two in the last seven years and won both of them. So both of them were dismissed. And I took them because I did not believe that anything went on. You know, I didn't think my client did anything wrong. So it takes a lot to convince myself to take one of those cases. And I'm sure that as my kids get older and my practice continues to grow, I will be able to be more picky. I'm sure that I will get to the point where I say no a lot more often. But when you're young, it's, it can be increasingly difficult to do that. I'm the Law is a Law Hub production. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this show in your favorite podcast app. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Blueprint LSAT Test Prep. Thank you also to our other sponsors, LSAT Lab, Seton Hall University School of Law, Vermont Law and Graduate School, and Baylor Law.